Hello and welcome to Mind on the Matter. I'm Tuba Khan, currently a fourth year medical student at King's College London with a bachelor's degree in neuroscience from the University of Sussex. And I love dogs. Just thought I would throw that in there. This podcast is about mental health, how it affects our lives and the need to consider its impact. I'm talking to Dr. Samia Latif this episode. She's a consultant in communicable disease control and works for Public Health England. We'll be discussing all things vaccine related, including a lot of the worries some people have about the COVID-19 vaccine. I actually had my COVID vaccine yesterday and I can confirm I am okay. Bit of a sore arm, but I can just pretend I did an arm workout and a bit of muscle aches and headache, but paracetamol will sort that out. And one step closer to being immune to COVID. So let's start by discussing your role as a consultant in communicable disease control, which sounds like something from a sci-fi movie, by the way. How did you end up getting into it? Hi, Tuba, and thank you for inviting me on the show. So yes, I am a consultant in communicable disease control, and I work for Public Health England. However, I need to make a disclaimer at this point. Uh, any, Any opinions or whatever I talk about is to be considered my own opinion and not that of my organization. How did I get into it? I've always, well, I'm I'm a medic by background, and when I joined public health, which was a field that had always fascinated me, when I, I grew up in a couple of less developed countries, Nigeria and, and Pakistan, and seeing the effect that the public health interventions can make in those countries had always fascinated me. Public health is basically three main areas. You've got your health improvement, you've got healthcare public health, which is more about the commissioning healthcare based on evidence, and you've got health protection. So I was interested in health protection and that that's my role. It's not as glamorous as it sounds, and it's not like the movie outbreak. Uh, although I must say the, the variety of work is just so interesting that it just keeps me stimulated. And something like the coronavirus pandemic. Um, about which we knew so little when when the virus came into humans and and how it's been a steep learning curve for all of us. So what was it like at work for you when the pandemic began? We'd we'd heard about the the Wuhan virus, as it was called, in the earlier days um, in, in December. And I think by January, we were seeing the scale beginning to sort of mount. And so end of February, when we started getting our first UK cases, coincidentally, most of our first UK cases, at least the ones I dealt with in the region I work in, East Midlands, uh, were coming from Austria in the shape of returning travellers who had gone to ski resorts. And uh, we were doing long, detailed interviews with them on their return. It was really, really interesting. But I think by early March or end of Feb, we'd gone into um, business continuity mode uh, in Public Health England, which meant that we had to drop everything that was non-essential and focused on this because we could see that this was going to be, um, it was going to be big and it was going to take a lot of our time. Having said that, Tuba, we have always been preparing for the pandemic, the flu pandemic, which hits us every hundred years. And when we faced swine flu back in, I think it was 2009-10, the impact of that wasn't wasn't at the scale that that we had initially thought, but we take part in numerous um, exercises. And I remember one in particular, which we did exercise Cygnus in 2016, which was a, an exercise based on a flu pandemic and you know, how we, we'd cope with it and all of that. And when you're in an exercise, you always know at the back of your mind, it's an exercise. And 
so we had all our plans in place and we were uh, I think we started working remotely by the end of April we're trying to do the best job we can it sounds like you're all working so hard and you must have been extremely happy to hear about the vaccines I wanted to talk a bit about the vaccines and how they work Essentially, they all instruct the body to make the coronavirus spike protein. They do this using mRNA, which is basically a genetic code that ends up making a specific protein, in this case, the coronavirus spike protein. And this is all so that our immune system can produce antibodies to fight against it. However, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine works a bit differently, doesn't it? We call it um, a viral vector. You need a vector or something to take the message into into your body. And for that, they're using a, a harmless chimpanzee adenovirus. And that virus has got the viral genes that the DNA is released into our cells. And then the DNA is broken down into messenger RNA, which then starts to build bits of the spike protein that you can see in the virus. And um, that spike protein is actually, it's a foreign body, it's, it's an antigen. So when the body realizes there's a foreign body, it mounts an immune response, it will release antibodies to tackle that antigen. That's how the Oxford AstraZeneca one works. It's it's also how the Russian one's going to work. And there's another Janssen vaccine, which will be coming out at some point. And then we have the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, which don't use a vector. So how do they work? So what happens is it's sort of, um, it's put into a little lipid envelope. Imagine a, a letter, an envelope, with a message inside, and that message is your messenger RNA. Once it enters the body, we've got enzymes, uh, as you'd know, to um, lipase, and the lipase will break down that lipid particle and release that messenger RNA. The messenger RNA is in the cells, in the host cells, in our in our human cells. It's then translated into this into that S protein, that spike protein. It's a virus bit of the viral protein, and once it gets onto the cell cell surface, it will stimulate that antibody and T cell response. Um, so Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech both have the same mechanism that I've just explained. However. The Moderna messenger RNA used is the actual viral RNA, which has been isolated and sort of broken down to give the exact gene. Whereas the Pfizer messenger RNA that's used is genetically engineered in a lab from the sequence. And I think by the end of December, if I'm not mistaken, I did read a while ago, by the 31st of December, China had already released the sequence of the viral genome, which was hugely helpful and which is, which is what has helped all of these countries uh, make these vaccines. I know a lot of people are concerned about the time frame of the vaccine, how quickly it was created and being rolled out. Could you explain why actually it doesn't make it any less safe and the reasons for this? A, we were in the middle of a pandemic. B, there was resource being thrown into this at, at a scale that we've never seen before by all countries. When a ma ma vaccine is manufactured, it has to go through rigorous trials and testing. And, and the first hurdle usually recruiting enough people as volunteers to try the, the vaccine. And usually just recruiting your volunteers can take up to sometimes a year, 18 months. However, because of the nature of this pandemic and, and the interest there was, they were really quick on the mark to get volunteers and a lot of volunteers. And that really cut down the time. Yeah, I think, like you said, a lot of people are worried. Mainly, they think, how can it be safe if it was done in such a short amount of time? But really, it was the fact that all these hurdles that usually have to be jumped over weren't there anymore because they had more funding, they had more volunteers. 
So it is amazing that we were able to do it in that time frame, and it shows what we can do when we need to do it. Definitely, definitely, for sure. So I asked my listeners if they had any worries about the vaccine, and I thought we could address some of their questions. I know a lot of people are speculating about whether one vaccine is more effective than the other. Right. We got initial efficacy figures, but I think it's fair to say that from the trial data, what we can see is that the majority of the vaccines will have a, a around about a 90% effectiveness. But the one thing I'd like to say here too, Ben, I think this is the public health person in me is is one thing I'd really like to to put into context. And I know if, if your audience is medical, that that they'll agree with it. But if if you have lay lay people in the audience, I think vaccines are known to be the single most important and effective public health intervention known to mankind. Vaccines save lives. But vaccines can only save lives if people are vaccinated. Now, as we're all aware, smallpox has been eradicated. How was that eradicated? That was eradicated due to a vaccine. And that that vaccine alone has saved an estimated 5 million lives a year. And and if you look at current day vaccines, they save five lives every minute. Prior to the measles vaccines or the MMR, measles as a disease was causing more than 2.6 million deaths globally. So vaccines save lives and they're the single most important um, intervention known to us. Now, the efficacy of these three vaccines is expected to be very high, but no vaccine can provide 100% effectiveness and no vaccine, no drug nothing in life life itself is not 100% certain so you can make a claim that any of these drugs or vaccines will be 100% effective and 100% safe we can't make that claim but it's the best bet we've got yeah i completely agree another thing that's been a hot topic to discuss is the government's decision to delay the second dose how does that affect immunity and i know a lot of healthcare professionals were annoyed about this but i think that was partly because of the government's way of communicating this yeah i know i've had long discussions even within my own household and the funny thing was uh, i've got a very good friend uh, who's a who's a consultant in communicable disease like me she's from india and her hubby the medic as well but both of our hubbies are not public health. And both of our hubbies asked us the same question and were arguing that, you know, why is this happening? And, and uh, we found out later that we'd both given the same response. So um, I think, look, number number one is that the, the trials that were done were not actually done to look at spacing out the two doses at the intervals currently being suggested. So that that's, that's fine. We know that. However, what we know from from all the different vaccines that we've been giving, including the childhood vaccines that have been around for many, many years, and from what the initial data is telling us with regards to how these vaccines work and how our body responds, shows that if you do space out the, the gap between the two doses, you're not going to reduce the efficacy or the effectiveness of the vaccine or, or the human body in mounting that same level of response. But what what you are doing, and this is a very public health sort of focus, rather than think of the one patient in front of you, you've got to think on a population level. And if you look at the ravage and the devastation that COVID has already caused to, but I mean, we've got approximately 90 million people across the world uh, being infected with, with COVID, 2 million nearly of whom have died 
just this weekend on Friday, you know, we, we touched nearly 70,000 infections, new infections, brand new infections, COVID infections. And this could be an underestimate in one single day. And we had, we've had over 1,300 deaths. So the reason that this decision was made, and it was made with a lot of thought given to it, was that let us try to capture as many people as we can with the first dose so that we are providing some level of immunity. We're decreasing the severity of the infection and we're decreasing the number of hospitalizations. So rather than, than vaccinate 10 people with two doses, if we can vaccinate 100 people with one dose, we're providing more cover in the first instance. We're reducing that burden on our healthcare service and we're reducing the severity of the illness and at which point a a safety sort of margin has been given so it's either three to 12 weeks for the Pfizer one and four to 12 weeks for the Oxford AstraZeneca one when the chief medical officers across the UK and this is not just England this is the devolved nations as well they all agreed to this after looking at all the evidence and having discussions with all the experts and all the vaccine gurus that I have spoken to within my field think that this is a sensible it's a very sensible approach and it will work historically with other vaccines that's how we've always done it and it and it hopefully will work and it will give us better protection in a shorter amount of time rather than less protection in a longer amount of time if that makes sense yeah that does make sense and how long do you think it will take to reach this herd immunity to get to a point where the majority of people are vaccinated and things get better for the NHS? So so we know that three vaccines have been approved. At, at, at present, two are already in play, the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Oxford-AstraZeneca one. Moderna has been approved, but probably won't be in play until early spring. But already we have vaccinated over one and a half million people in the UK. Now, the way that this has been planned to roll out is to focus on your most vulnerable and high priority groups. We're thinking about these these groups, we're thinking about covering around 30 million people. At present, the vaccine is being focused and the high priority groups are your 80 plus years old, your frontline health workers, your frontline social care workers, residents in care homes, and also the staff in care homes. Because this generally tends to be an older, more vulnerable population with with multiple illnesses and comorbidities. They're hoping to sort of get these first two categories done by the end of Jan and by February time. The the way it will work is it will be the 75 years older and over, then the 70 years older and over, at which point I think when they start doing the 70-year-olds, they're going to do extremely clinically Vulnerable individuals, those people who are immune suppressed or, you know, whose whose bodies can't mount a good response themselves. So it's broken down into five year chunks. After 65, it'll be 16 to 64 year olds with serious underlying health conditions. And then 60 and above, 55 and above, 50 and above. So that's how it's going to be rolled out. It is going to take a while. There are huge logistical issues that have had to be surmounted and still have to be surmounted. So hopefully we'll get there. But this is this is what the government has planned with advice given from public health and experts about tackling the most vulnerable and the most susceptible ones first. So that's that's the aim. The second phase will then focus on the rest of the population, uh, mainly the under 50s, who are much less likely to be ill with COVID. Yeah, I mean, we're getting off to a great start. The amount they reached last week for people being vaccinated was over a million I think yes yes we're well over one and a half million now that's amazing yeah the UK's done really well we we live in in a 
very, very small global village now. I mean, borders are no longer the borders that we used to have. Borders are porous. And so we we really rely on the whole world mounting a similar response with the vaccine rollout. I'm just hoping that the rest of Europe and the East, the European Medicines Agency, Germany, France, they all sort of get this vaccine rolled out as soon as they can so that we can have those different levels or circles of protection in the world or in the countries around us as well. Yeah, definitely. And speaking about different countries, we know that there have been new strains that have been identified. Do we know if these vaccines will cover us against the new strains? Right. So um, I think one thing I'd like to say about the, the UK variant, or it's also known as the Kent variant, we're calling it the variant of concern one, is the UK found that that variant tuba because we were looking for it. The UK, I think, is a world leader in whole genome sequencing, which means you look at the genetic makeup of, of the virus or, or the bacteria or whatever agent you're looking at, and you're able to see the different mutations. What happened in, I, I will answer your question in a, in a second, but just a bit of context. We were under a national lockdown, if you remember, in November. And at that time, this was pre-Christmas, the rates of infection were dropping across the country due to the impact of the national lockdown. However, we saw something very unusual happen in Kent and then in London and the, and the wider southeast, which was the rates of infection started increasing, whereas they were coming down in the rest of the country, they started increasing. At which time, when they looked more in more detail at the whole genome sequencing, they found out that it was this variant virus that was at play. Now, we've known about this variant since September, but it wasn't until November that we saw that it was beginning to have an impact. And that's because viruses always tend to mutate. They don't stay still. They keep changing. And if it's minor mutations, that's fine. And, and the mutation at the moment is, is not a, it's not a big mutation. It's a minor mutation. And all the evidence that we've seen from the vaccine program has shown that the vaccines are effective against this variant of concern, number one, which is the UK variant, as we're calling it. Now, the, the other evidence that we've seen so far, because whole genome sequencing tuber takes two weeks, I think people don't realise how long it takes to, to get the sequence. It takes up to two weeks. So you can imagine the time lag. Fortunately, what we've seen from our lighthouse labs or those, you know, the mega labs that we've that the country set up to deal with COVID is from those labs, what we've seen is that the, the PCR test that we're doing is actually also able in not all of the PCR labs, but, you know, the ones we're doing, the majority are. There's a proxy measure that we found in the PCR tests that we're doing, which is which has up to a 90, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 98 percent and more accuracy will pick up your variant virus. So. If you're getting these PCR tests done to find out if you're infective or not, we've got a proxy measure in them that will tell us that you've got the variant virus. And what we've seen is that the variant virus spreads more quickly. I think the ballpark figure is 55%, but the range is between 50 to 70% more transmissible between person to person than the original virus. We know it spreads more quickly. However, the um, vaccine is shown to be effective against the, the variant strain. So that's that's good news for us. Yeah, that is great news. And as devastating as COVID is, I think it's also shown us how wonderful science is and how incredible it is that we are actually able to tackle something like this in this time frame. 
definitely. I think it's been absolutely amazing. The uh, the, the speed at which we were able to roll out, you know, make the vaccines and the speed at which, you know, we've been able to roll them out in the UK. It's it's just been stunning. Uh, there's There's been no lack of a will to make things work. And there's been no lack of volunteers and people coming forward. I mean, I think they're recruiting up to another 30,000 people now. Um, to help roll out the vaccines and and funding has been no obstacle in this COVID pandemic. So we've seen a lot of good things happen in the pandemic. And at the same time, we're learning a lot of lessons as well. Yeah, definitely. A lot of lessons have been learnt. And speaking about volunteers, let's move on to people receiving the vaccine. I know some people have worries about if there could be some side effects that are found five to ten years later after you've had the vaccine. And I've even heard some healthcare professionals joke and say, I don't want to get the vaccine because I want to have kids in ten years. Right, but I only heard about that that rumour very recently. And it's the first time I've heard of that linked to the COVID um, vaccine. So, okay. Every vaccine will have some side effects. What we do know is that the side effects are usually known to be local, which means they occur at the site uh, of injection. So if you're injecting a vaccine, and I've already had the first dose, so I can speak from experience, um, you, you, might, you may get a sore arm. With the first dose, uh, my hubby didn't get a sore arm. I got a sore arm. I had a sore arm that night and the next day, and I just took some paracetamol. You can get fever. You just take paracetamol. It's, mu- it's much like when you go um, and mums take their children for their childhood vaccines, and and the doctor or the nurse will say to you, "Look, if your child has a fever, just give them some calpol." Much like that. If you get a fever, just take some paracetamol. You could get some localized swelling in that area where the, where the injection was given, and you might get um, some headache or muscle ache so those those are the side effects most common to covid um, but this this thing about making people infertile and i i think one one other vaccine from where this could have this myth could have sort of arrived polio has been eradicated across the world other than afghanistan and pakistan and the one thing that did huge damage to the pakistan program was uh, the american uh, mission to find Osama bin Laden, because they came under the guise of being polio vaccinators or there to study polio or something. And that left a lot of mistrust in in the local population, not just in Pakistan, but across the border in Afghanistan as well. And one of the most common myths that they propagate is um, this will make you infertile. And that's what the Americans want to do. It is purely, purely, purely a myth. Polio is devastating. It can leave you debilitated, disabled for life. It kills. And, um, you know, the whole world has mounted such an effective polio vaccination program and eradication program. But unfortunately, Pakistan and Afghanistan, I think Nigeria was one of the three countries, but it has now got it under control. But it's just Pakistan and Afghanistan at the moment that haven't eradicated polio, which is such a shame. And one of the myths under that was because of this vaccine being an American propaganda or agenda and it makes you infertile, etc, etc. So no, the vaccine does not affect your fertility, this COVID vaccine. Yeah, I thought as much. And what do you think about those who are not willing to get the vaccine? So we've got the vaccine enthusiasts really, really think that, you know, it's, it's, it's such an effective, such a cost effective way to, to protect your health, protect the health, not just of yourselves too, but those of your, of your loved ones, your family and friends as well. You've got the vaccine hesitant people who are sort of in the middle and umming and eyeing 
accepted. And then you've got the vaccine reluctant people. We've always had the vaccine reluctant people. We've had them. We call them the anti-vaxxers as well. And they're very, very vocal tuber. And the COVID vaccine is a new vaccine. They've been around for all the other older vaccines as well. But I think people need to trust. They need to be trust in the system. You need to have confidence in the safety of the vaccine. You, you need what is shown to sort of help with vaccine acceptance is that your, if your healthcare professional is recommending it, you trust the system that's delivering it. It is convenient, it is free and easy. If you have any doubts about the vaccine, you really need to talk to a trusted health professional. So Tuba, you and I know that if we're ill, we're going to seek help from a GP or a, or a doctor. We're not, we're not going to go to an engineer to ask his advice and vice versa. We're planning a home extension at the moment. And so I'm not going to go to my doctor to draw up the plans. I went to an architect because that is where the skill lies. So you need to talk to someone who has knowledge, who can, who has looked at the information, who understands the information. Google is not your answer. Google is extremely helpful, but you need to be able to sift through that information and you need to be able to look at all the biases and you know, critically appraise that information. And healthcare professionals have been trained to do that. And they're able then to also give that advice to you. So please, please talk to someone, talk to a trusted healthcare professional. I'm sure people will have someone in their network that they know. Uh, and, and we need to really quash these rumours. Yeah, Google is a bit of a minefield. And I myself have also been guilty of Googling things that actually really didn't make anything better. <laughs> Another topic that I know that you're particularly interested in is why those of minority ethnic groups might not get the vaccine. The Royal Society for Public Health conducted a poll that showed that 79% of white respondents would take the vaccine, compared to 57% of those from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds. One of the hats I wear, Tuba, is I am the chair for our BAME network at, in Public Health England and this is an area dear to my heart. I think the sad thing is we also know from the first wave that it was our, it is the BAME community that is more adversely affected by COVID as well and it's sad to see then if this community which is more affected and more vulnerable is then declining or refusing to to take the vaccine. And I'm, I, I won't say that everyone would be declining and refusing it. I think there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy going on. And what we need to do, we've all got a role to play in this, what we need to do is shift them from sitting on the fence to become vaccine acceptors. A lot of the lessons I learned from, and this is my personal learning. If you, rem if you remember too, when we had the first wave and the first lockdown, the first area to then go into a local lockdown was Leicester. And it made the news big time at that time. Once we'd come out of that that national lockdown, I, I live in Leicestershire. And um, so I was around me happening in Leicester. And um, one of the things we saw, and we did see this uh, both from a scientific way, and we had experts working with us in Public Health England. Um, and what I saw personally was that the message just wasn't getting out there. If you've got a, an ethnic community, they are more likely to switch on the radio or the TV channel from their home country rather than listen to BBC News or Sky News or, you know, all of these other Western channels. So they will listen to what's happening back home. And now Leicester, as you know, has a very high Southeast Asian ethnic population. And at that time, rates were, in the first wave, rates were very low 
in in Pakistan and India. I know they they then did go up tremendously in India, but they stayed low for a while in Pakistan. So people were listening to their home channels, and what they were seeing was, oh, you know, you you like what is COVID? I can't see it. It's in not affecting. Oh, it's just a myth. And and then you had that huge barrage of conspiracy theories come forward at that time. Uh, all of our WhatsApps, I'm sure, have been inundated. Hard to believe if you haven't received at least one conspiracy theory sort of WhatsApp message. So I think wasn't being done in Leicester, which then subsequently was done, was putting out the communication in a very culturally sensitive way so that you are doing it in a language that people understand, people relate to. And what you also need to understand that, and when I talk about the white British population, indigenous to the UK, um, the average reading age of, of a person is 10 years. The language that we put out or the communication we put out always has to be very simple and accessible. And the same would apply when you're doing it in a different language. So the same principles would apply. And I think what really helps here is the use of pictures. A lot of the posters that that have then been produced by Public Health England and by the NHS have been really, really good examples of how you can get the message across, whether it's something as simple as washing your hands or uh, how to put on a mask, how to dispose of a mask. And in a lot of the outbreaks that I've been dealing with, if we've had uh, an ethnic population working in that work area or uh, you know, in, in the community, we've tried to get the messaging out in the right languages. And where we haven't had access to to that language, we made sure that we put out the right messages in, in the form of pictures. So I think there's a lot we can do in communication. Risk communication is, is, a, is a key science. Uh, China has a brilliant, brilliant sort of whole field that just focuses on risk communication and, and how to get the message out and how to sort of talk about risk in, in a way that, that the general population will understand. And I think that's something that in the UK we really, really need to develop. Communication is definitely key. I also wanted to mention about categorising BAME as a group. I understand it shows us differences in statistics. However, sometimes I feel like it doesn't allow us to explore the reasons for these differences. BAME is a huge group of different cultures, different religions and different individuals. We all have our own reasons for not wanting a vaccine. No, I I, I do agree too. But I I think I think the reasons that there's load there is so there there are a lot of reasons. Some of it could be access to healthcare services, which is which is the first thing that we that mostly people would think of, um, and that is um, people from minority ethnic communities uh, tend to sort of access healthcare services less. And is that about awareness? What, what are the barriers? I think it's really important to understand what are the barriers that are stopping people from accessing health services in the first place. And I'm talking, of, I'm not talking COVID here, I'm talking general healthcare services. However, what was really interesting, Tuba, really, really interesting, which was seen was this effect where it's called the healthy migrant effect or the healthy migrant worker effect, where it was seen that when you have migrants coming to a country in search of economic work or prosperity, they usually tend to be fitter and more healthier. It's just a selection bias in, in, in the people who come forward. So they tend to be healthier. However, when we looked at the UK data, and I'm not just talking about recently arrived migrants, I'm talking about people who may have been born in another country or who have grandparents from another country, but and who may have been in the UK for a long while. It was seen that 
generally the health outcomes were, were quite good and uh, were very good actually. But with COVID, that flipped. The questions being asked currently are, is it just about access to healthcare services or is there something genetic at play here? Is it because one of the reasons given earlier on was uh, maybe that the people from these communities tend to be more frontline workers? Yes, we do know that a huge bit of our health and social care structure is propped up with the help of migrant or ethnic communities or, you know, British people, but from a, from an ethnic community. So is it that? Is it because they had more more of the frontline menial jobs? Is it because they didn't understand the messaging around wearing the masks safely? Is it something genetic? What the communications, all of that is being looked at. And I don't think we've got an answer, but we really, really need to understand why. I think we talk about culture tuba, but we must, must reach out to our faith champions as well in the community. The polio example I gave and, and the scare that the polio vaccine will leave you infertile, it was very much a myth that was propagated by the Taliban, not just in Afghanistan, but we know the Taliban are in Pakistan as well. So, And people who then cannot see the evidence, cannot read the, uh, the scientific evidence or, or you know, don't have a better understanding of it, will begin to believe it. And what starts off as hearsay then just becomes the norm for them and it becomes the accepted norm for them. I think we really, really need to work with our faith workers. And we did that with the Leicester lockdown. I know that the mosques were all involved and they got people, um, we've got people from the churches, from the Gurdwaras, from the Hindu temples. Everyone was taken on board. And, you know, the messaging, it was discussed with them. Because when I, when I said earlier that you need to go and ask a person you trust, a trusted healthcare professional, for some people, and and you'll be surprised, it's not just the Asian or the black or the minority ethnic community, even for, for the white British or for the Western communities. When we when we are faced with a problem, we will often go to someone in our own social network first. You'll discuss it with your mom, you'll discuss it with a sibling, with your husband, with, with a friend. You know what? I, I've been getting these funny something, you know, I've got this pain in my hand, for example. We mustn't, mustn't underestimate the power that that those social networks have in informing us and in influencing us. So if we get the message out there, we need to get it out there to, to not just the community champions, but the faith champions and get it out there so that there's a general awareness that is raised. I heard some figures recently, and they're not official, but the uptake in in Yorkshire and Humber, for example, in a particular area amongst, I think it was the Asian community there, was exceedingly low, the uptake of the vaccine to, to the 80 plus. And I was really, really saddened to hear that. And I then, the next day, saw a, a post by a, a very, very esteemed colleague of mine who works in, the, he's a director of public health who works in, in Yorkshire and Humber. In fact, I'm sure he won't mind me giving his name, Dr. Abdul Razak. He's on Twitter, follow his tweets. He tweeted about his elderly father having received the vaccine and a picture of it. And, you know, that picture spoke more than a thousand words because I, I, I commented and I said, you know what, Abdul, we need to make your father the face of this campaign in that Asian community. <laughs> because, you know, he's, he's an elderly member of that community, has lived in that area for years and years. So he will be seen as someone who's trusted. And if, his, if he can talk about his experience, he's had the vaccine, you know, that might encourage other people to come forward. But I think we all have a role to play here, Tuba. I completely agree. 
And the poll that I mentioned before also showed that people from minority ethnic groups who were not willing to be vaccinated were especially receptive to offers of further health information from their GP, which just shows that education and communication is the way forward. It, it, it really is, as well as getting the comms out there in different languages. And so when you asked me to do this interview for you, the reason I, I, I agree to do them, although it, sometimes I feel too, but that even in my leisure time, all I'm doing is COVID. But I'm just hoping that if, if my message or what I say helps even one person make up their mind to, you know, to protect themselves and to protect their loved ones, I, I would have felt that I've, I've done a job, my job well. There's a lot of community groups out there who are doing some wonderful work. And we had such a, one of these community groups approach us. And they asked me to do a little talk in, in Urdu, which is um, very similar to Hindi. So by, by doing it in Urdu, I was actually sort of capturing two audiences here and do a very simple sort of explanation of what COVID is, how it spreads and what we can do. And a few weeks later, friend's daughter who texted me and said, Sami Auntie, I saw your video interview and my mother-in-law watched it. And for the first time, my mother-in-law now understands why it's important to stay home and not go and meet her friends. Because That's amazing. I know. And I was like, oh, my God. So the elderly ladies in Leicester might have like a once a week get together where they would sit and talk about things. They would knit or it might have been a faith based get together. But a lot of these elderly people look forward to that once a week meeting, for example, when that's taken away from them and they're told to isolate, they're not going to do it unless they understand why it's important to do it. It's really important that we get the message out there too, but we get it in the right language and in a very sensitive way so that, you know, we are taking into accord people's cultural sensitivities and those cultural sensitivities may or may not have faith as a component. Cultural sensitivity is such a key component of our healthcare system, especially because of how diverse our country is. And I just wanted to say thank you so much, Samia Auntie. I'm sure you will have made listeners less worried about the COVID-19 vaccine and more hopeful for brighter days ahead. But I just have one message just to put things into perspective. There's a bit of statistics that has been done to illustrate how the importance of how safe vaccines are so for example if we vaccinate 10 million people with with i'm talking about any any vaccine and if the vaccine had no side effects whatsoever which is a hypothetical situation because we know nothing in life is 100 safe and you will have some minor side effects but if we were to vaccinate 10 million people and the vaccine had no side effects hypothetically over the following two months we would still see 4,000 people of those who were vaccinated have a heart attack, For approximately 4,000 will have a stroke, approximately 10,000 will have a new diagnosis of cancer, and unfortunately 14,000 of those people will die, not because of the vaccine, because that is life. And those are illnesses or diseases that people get. Life is risky. Some tragic events will happen after vaccination, even when the vaccine has nothing to do with it. So if people ask about the side effects from the COVID vaccine, and I'm talking here about anaphylaxis, which is a very, very severe allergic reaction that very few people get. I don't know the COVID vaccine. Initially, we did see someone have anaphylaxis, but that is why the vaccine is given in a healthcare setting. 
So when you receive the vaccine, you're asked to wait for about 15 minutes in a room so that you can be observed. You are more likely to leave your house and get run over by a bus or by a bolt of lightning than to have an anaphylactic reaction from the COVID vaccine because that is life and life carries risk with it. Wow, statistics really put things into perspective, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It's just different ways of trying to illustrate. The honest answer to this, we don't know about the long side, long-term long side effects. But what we do know is that getting the infection can, can take your life. It can leave you with long-term side effects. You know, you've heard of long COVID. So getting the, it is better to protect yourself than from getting the vaccination. And most vaccines, well, nearly all the vaccinations that, that are available to us for, for all the different diseases have shown that the side effects are often short-term and not long-term. So please, please do consider, if you're offered the vaccine, do consider taking it and protecting not just yourselves, but protecting others, your loved ones, your family and your friends. Yeah, I 100% agree. Thank you again to Dr. Latif for such an informative episode. You might have noticed that I called her Samia Auntie. It's a sign of respect and something we do in Pakistani culture. Otherwise, I would have about 500 aunties. I hope you guys learned something from this episode. I mean, I'm definitely a vaccine raver now compared to an enthusiast. Mm-hmm.